The Zodiac first appeared in the San Francisco Bay Area during the summer of 1969 when he shot two couples sitting in parked cars at Lover's Lane areas. These attacks occurred at night in Venetia and Vallejo, but weeks later, the killer returned, and this time, he decided to strike in daylight at a popular recreation area. Located approximately 40 miles north of Vallejo, Lake Berryessa was 23 miles long and 3 miles across at its widest point. Surrounded by lush green scenery and rolling hills, the beautiful landscape seemed like an unlikely setting for a horrific murder. When European settlers first came to the Berryessa Valley in the early 19th century, the Patwin and Miwok Indian tribes lived at the bottom of the valley along the banks of Puda Creek. After the tribes were driven into the neighboring hillsides, Spanish immigrant Nazario Berryessa and his family occupied the land which would eventually be known as Spanish Flats. In 1843, two of Berryessa's 11 children, brothers Jesus and Sexto, received a grant from the governor and became the owners of 36,000 acres of the vast valley. Farmers and ranchers moved into the area and soon developed a small community. In 1866, the town of Monticello was founded, paving the way for the construction of stores, hotels, and other structures. A four-horse stage line passed through the town on its way from Knoxville to Napa, carrying new residents and boosting the tourist trade. The prosperity continued when the California Gold Rush drew more hopeful prospectors, settlers, and visitors. By the turn of the century, the growing population and expanding agriculture required a new and plentiful water supply. One early plan called for a dam to store water from Puda Creek in a narrow section of the Berryessa Valley known as Devil's Gate. A 1947 plan placed the dam at a location near the boundary between Napa and Solano counties, called Devil's Gap. While construction of the dam began in 1953, the residents of Monticello prepared to evacuate the valley before the Devil's Gap filled with water and overwhelmed the town. The Monticello Dam was completed in 1957, and the resulting reservoir was named Lake Berryessa for the brothers Jesus and Sexto Berryessa. The graves of the two men, along with the Puta Creek Bridge and other reminders of the forgotten town, were still hidden beneath the surface of the water when the newly formed lake was opened for public recreation in 1959. The lake became a popular destination for boating, fishing, and weekend celebrations. Members of the 1960s band Creedence Clearwater Revival were known to visit the lake, and Puda Creek reportedly inspired the hit song, Green River. For reasons unknown, the Zodiac selected this location as the scene of his next attack. This crime was more bizarre and terrifying than anyone had imagined. After shooting two young couples, the killer changed his methods and claimed his next victims by knife. you both to lay face down so I can tie up your feet. Your hands are shaking. Are you nervous? Yes. I guess so. <laughs> I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. Where are you now? I'm the one who did it. This guy is a pathological uh, psycho uh, killer. I just don't want this to happen again to anyone else. I wish somebody would catch this guy. I don't care who it is. Just somebody catch him. Zodiac said he shall never be caught. This is Zodiac A to Z. In the late afternoon, of September 27, 1969, Ronald Fong and his nine-year-old son were sitting in a boat floating on Lake Berryessa. 
Ronald maneuvered the boat near a small isolated patch of land known as Goat Island. As they waited to feel a tug on the lines of their fishing poles, they could hear the sound of faint cries across the lake. Ronald set out to find the source of the noise and headed toward the shoreline. The boat approached a peninsula named Twin Oak Ridge, where he could see two figures were moving at the edge of the water. They were screaming. Ronald picked up a pair of binoculars and saw that the two people were moving around very slowly, as if they were intoxicated. When he finally reached the peninsula, Ronald realized that the two people were covered in blood. The young man and woman in their early 20s frantically explained that they had been stabbed and desperately needed medical care. Concerned for the safety of his young son, Ronald would not take the boat any closer to shore, but he did promise to get help. He steered the boat back to the marina and ran into a boat repair shop to report the crime to owners Archie and Elizabeth White. Archie called Park Headquarters and reported the incident. Then, Ronald, Archie, and Elizabeth led Park Ranger William White, no relation, back to the scene. They reached Twin Oak Ridge where they found a young woman in a blood-soaked sweater dress kneeling on the ground. She was on her elbows and knees rocking back and forth in obvious pain from ten stab wounds in her body. Elizabeth tried to comfort the young woman who said that her name was Cecilia. Nearby, park ranger Dennis Land was driving his pickup truck along Knoxville Road when he saw a man lying on the ground. He stopped, got out of the truck, and then realized that the man was covered in blood. He helped the man into the truck, and they headed back to the crime scene together. The man explained that his name was Brian, and he had crawled more than 300 yards despite the ongoing blood loss from six stab wounds in his back. They returned to Twin Oak Ridge and joined the others as they waited for the ambulance to make the long trip from the nearby city of Napa. Brian and Cecilia were weak from blood loss and excruciating pain, but they tried to explain what happened. They had been relaxing on the shore when a man approached, pointing a gun at them. He was dressed in dark clothing and wore a hood over his head. He said that he had escaped from a prison and needed money and a car so he could drive to Mexico. Convinced that the man only intended to rob them, Brian and Cecilia allowed the man to bind their hands and feet with plastic clothesline. He then stabbed the victims without warning and left them on the peninsula to die together. Determined to survive, they managed to free themselves and Brian crawled up the road to get help. The ambulance finally arrived and the victims were placed inside for the hour-long drive to Queen of the Valley Hospital in Napa. At the Napa Police Department, Officer David Slate manned the switchboard. He expected trouble when he answered an incoming call, but Officer Slate had no idea that he was about to speak to one of the most wanted killers in history. Napa Police Department Supplementary Report at 7.40 p.m., 9.27.69, received a telephone call on line one of the Napa Police Department switchboard. I answered with, Napa Police Department Officer Slate. A male voice, young-sounding, possibly early 20s, stated calmly, I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. They're two miles north of Park Headquarters. They were in a white Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. There was a pause at which time I asked, Where are you now? In a voice barely audible came, I'm the one who did it. I could hear the line was still open because I could hear traffic passing the phone, and for some reason I got the impression there were people near or around because I seemed to recall hearing feminine voices in the background. However, at the time I was in the process of phoning the Napa Sheriff's Office with another phone, and with radio transmission it was hard to tell. I informed the SO of the call and then phoned the operator to see if the call could be traced. An operator stated that this was a 255 payphone and that the man had refused to give the number when he placed the call. This led me to believe that he had dialed the operator and asked for the police department. 
at which time she asked him for the number he was calling from, and he refused to give the number. The operator in charge said she would try to find out where it came from, and she would hold the line open until its origin could be found. David Slate, Napa Police Department, 92769. The caller set the receiver down, leaving the line open in an apparent effort to prevent the operator from calling back and causing the payphone to ring. Police units searched for the payphone, but a local reporter discovered that the receiver was off the hook in the telephone booth at the Napa Car Wash, located a few blocks away from the sheriff's office at 1231 Main Street, near the corner of Clinton and Main Streets. Ken Narlow had just finished dinner when the telephone rang in his home at 8.20 p.m. A husband and father, Narlo worked as an investigator for the Napa County Sheriff's Office, where his dedication and professionalism had earned him the respect of his co-workers. His years of experience could not have prepared Narlo for the phone call that would forever change his life. Narlo was informed of the stabbing at Lake Berryessa and directed to meet the ambulance at the hospital. Thirteen minutes later, Narlo walked into the hospital emergency room and met with fellow investigator Richard Lonergan and Cecilia's mother, Wilma Shepard. Narlo contacted the sheriff's office and learned of the cryptic call to Napa police. He instructed Sergeant Hal Snook to drive to the scene and process the phone booth for physical evidence. The ambulance arrived at the hospital at 8.50 p.m. Ken Narlo watched as attendants removed the victims, Cecilia Shepard and Brian Hartnell, and rushed them into the emergency room. I was at the hospital when they brought the kids in. I met the ambulance, and uh, Hartnell was in and out of uh, in and out of it as far as coherence is concerned. And Cecilia Shepard was in a, in a coma. We never did get to talk to her. We were in the emergency room, and then you know, with the two victims, multiple wounds, and everything, the emergency room got to be a little crowded. We have a real good rapport with our emergency hospital staff, and they allowed us to stay around there until this time as it got a little cumbersome. So they asked us to step outside, and so we did. Doctors and nurses examined the victims and treated their wounds. Both Brian and Cecilia required blood transfusions to stabilize their vital signs before they would be strong enough to endure the prolonged surgery necessary to repair the massive damage caused by the attacker's foot-long knife. While Cecilia awaited surgery, a technician used an x-ray machine to photograph Brian's wounds. Detective Lonergan took advantage of the opportunity to interview the surviving victim. Heavily sedated and physically exhausted, Brian was able to provide few details. The suspect had worn a black, ceremonial-type hood with a square top, as well as dark pants and a dark jacket. In addition to the large knife, the man had carried an automatic pistol in a black hip holster. Brian said that the suspect was heavy set, possibly 200 to 250 pounds. Lonergan ended the interview when Brian became incoherent and unable to continue. Narlow called the sheriff's office and assigned deputies Alan Brambrink and William Monk to confiscate the clothing of the victims and remain at the hospital as a security measure. Lonergan and Narlow then returned to headquarters with the hope that Brian and Cecilia would survive to help identify the man who tried to kill them. Investigators learned more about the victims. Cecilia Ann Shepard was born on January 1, 1947, in Nuzvid, India. She was one of three sisters and lived with her parents in Loma Linda, California. While studying music at Pacific Union College in Angwin, Cecilia met a pre-law student named Brian Calvin Hartnell, born in Walla Walla, Washington, on June 1, 1949. The two dated for a while and remained friends when their romantic relationship ended and Cecilia transferred to the University of California in Riverside for her junior year. On September 27th, Cecilia returned to Pacific Union College to visit Brian and her friend Judy. The three friends met on the PUC campus earlier that afternoon 
and departed sometime around 1 p.m. in Brian's Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. They traveled south to the city of St. Helena, where they stopped to browse at a rummage sale. Brian bought a television set for his room, but soon realized his car was too small to accommodate the set and the two girls. He decided to take the television back to his room at the campus and then return for Cecilia. Judy stayed in St. Helena, while Brian and Cecilia planned to go to San Francisco, but they decided to go to Lake Berryessa instead. Sheriff's deputies Dave Collins and Ray Land met Narlow and Lonergan at Twin Oak Ridge shortly before midnight. After they were briefed on the efforts to secure the area, the investigators were directed to the roadside to examine a collection of boot prints apparently left by the attacker. Narlow and Lonergan carefully followed the boot prints from the crime scene and back up to the road where Brian had parked his car. The beams of the flashlights cut through the darkness and revealed a large crossed circle drawn on the passenger door. Below the symbol was a chilling message in handwriting that was frighteningly familiar. The message read, Vallejo, 12-20-68, Sept-2769, by knife. Narlo recognized the crossed circle as the signature of the Zodiac, and he knew that the dates written below the ominous symbol represented the two shootings already linked to the elusive killer. The sheriff's office and other law enforcement agencies in the area had been providing assistance to the investigators in Vallejo and Benicia, and the threatening letters sent by the killer were front-page news. As he stood in the darkness and studied the murderous resume, Narlo was truly disturbed by the Zodiac's brazen behavior. Park Ranger Dennis Land joined the detectives and then accompanied them to park headquarters to collect the evidence found at the scene. Among the items cataloged were a blood-soaked blanket, the blood-stained pieces of white plastic clothesline used to bind the victims, their shoes, as well as the wallet, jacket, and glasses belonging to Brian Hartnell. A green bottle was also collected at the scene in case some evidence could be recovered which might help identify a suspect. Narlo and Lonergan returned to the crime scene and conferred with Detective Sergeant Hal Snook and Sergeant Tom Butler. Before traveling to the lake, Detective Snook had driven to the Napa car wash to examine the payphone used by the killer. He dusted for fingerprints and located a fresh palm print on the receiver. Snook's report read, Heavy beads of moisture remained on the impressions when he photographed the print more than three hours after the killer had touched the phone. According to Narlo, Snook was convinced that the suspect had left the palm print. The print was still moist and had to be dried with a light before Snook could dust and remove the print. Narlo and the other investigators were reasonably certain that the print belonged to the suspect. Years later, some theorists claimed that Snook had somehow damaged the print during the collection process. But can Narlo debunk this version of events? I don't recall that at all. The only thing my ID man told me was that he was pretty convinced it was a suspect print because it was uh, moist and uh, had to be uh, dried uh, with the use of a light, uh, heat light. Before it could be lifted. Before it could be dusted and printed and, and removed. So you guys operated under that assumption that it was the suspect's print? Well, pretty, pretty well assured because the phone was found off the hook and we got a moist print inside the booth. It's a palm, no fingerprints or anything. And, you know, we were reasonably sure, as much as anybody can, that it would be the suspect's partial palm print. The boot prints discovered near Brian Hartnell's car were measured and photographed, and plaster casts were made to help identify the size and brand. Sergeant Butler also photographed the tire tracks before Detective Snook made a casting of the tread design. Several latent fingerprints were lifted from the door of Brian's car, and a large sheet of brown paper was taped over the door in order to preserve the handwritten message. 
Detective Lonergan climbed behind the wheel of the Carmen Ghia and drove the vehicle to the maintenance garage at Park Headquarters for further examination. Deputies Alan Brambrink and Mel Fletcher were assigned to guard the area until sunrise. I ended up at the very effort to make sure that the crime scene was secure for the night. Posted guards uh, made arrangements to come back the next morning so that they wouldn't tramp around destroying any evidence that night. By that time, it was getting dark. Whatever information we were going to gain, we'd be better off to wait and get it the next morning. Dean Cole of Pacific Union College in Anglin contacted the Napa County Sheriff's Office in the early afternoon of Sunday, September 28th. Cole reported that three students had encountered a stranger who seemed to be watching them as they sunbathed at Lake Berryessa the previous day. Detective Ken Narlow sent Deputy Ray Land to interview the students. The headline of the Sunday Vallejo Times-Herald read, Young couple bound, stabbed at Lake Berryessa, and noted, Vallejo murderer may be the attacker. The next morning, Narlow and Lonergan conferred with investigators assigned to the other Zodiac cases. They discussed strategies and prepared a general list of possible suspects. Captain Townsend told reporters, This guy is a pathological uh, psycho uh, killer. There's no doubt about it. He also had no doubt that the Vallejo attacker was responsible for the stabbing at the lake. Townsend told reporters that there was a definite pattern in the three Zodiac attacks. The three girls from the lake arrived at the sheriff's office to tell their story. Joanne, a 21-year-old co-ed at Pacific Union College, and her two friends had driven to the lake to sunbathe on the day of the attack. Shortly before 3 p.m., the girls parked their car two miles north of the A&W root beer stand on Knoxville Road. The young women gathered their belongings and prepared to walk to the shoreline. Another vehicle entered the parking lot, drove by the girls, pulled in behind their car, and backed up until the rear bumpers were parallel. The driver sat inside the car, his head down as if he was pretending to read something. The girls proceeded on towards the lake and settled along the shore. Lying on towels and clad in bikinis, the three friends had enjoyed the afternoon sun for 30 minutes before they noticed that the stranger was lurking behind the trees 40 to 50 feet away. He stared at the sunbathers, only to turn away whenever they looked in his direction. At one time, the man came within 20 feet of the girls before he walked up the nearby hill. The three co-eds described the man's vehicle as a late-model, two-door Chevrolet sedan, silver-blue in color with California license plates. While their descriptions of the man varied slightly, each of the girls provided similar details. The stranger was said to be a white male, between 28 and 30 years of age, with dark hair that was parted on the left side. The man was at least six feet tall, had a stocky build, and was approximately 200 to 225 pounds. He had a round face, rounded eyes, thin lips, a medium nose, straight eyebrows, and small ears. The girls also said that the man was, quote, nice looking, wearing dark pants and a dark short-sleeved sweater shirt over an untucked white undershirt. The man had, quote, medium color skin and was not wearing glasses. Other witnesses had also seen a man matching that description at the lake. A composite sketch of the man was produced and distributed to the public. The man was described as a possible witness, or a person of interest. As the investigation continued, Narlow and others were saddened by the news that Cecilia Shepard died on September 29th. The death of Cecilia Ann Shepard was a dark turning point in the seemingly endless tragedy as she became the fourth victim to die at the hands of the killer. Until the bizarre attack at Lake Berryessa, the Zodiac was little more than a faceless villain with a gun. Remorseless letters and coded messages made him unique among criminal contemporaries, but the tale of the cold-blooded conversationalist 
dressed in a chilling costume and carving up young coeds, made the Zodiac a legend among maniacs. The search for the killer became a top priority for law enforcement agencies across the state of California. Narlo and Lonergan checked on various suspects reported by concerned citizens. Detective John Robertson met with surviving victim Brian Hartnell at the Queen of the Valley Hospital. Brian examined dozens of bullets in an attempt to identify the caliber of the weapon used by the killer, and he eventually determined that the brass 45 caliber shells were most similar to those inside the Zodiac's gun. Brian also said that he could see the killer's greasy brown hair through eye holes in the hooded costume. The man was tall, perhaps six feet or taller, but the victims were on an incline and looking up at the killer throughout most of the incident. Brian admitted that he was a poor judge of height because he was rather tall himself. The man appeared to be large and heavy set, but years later, Brian Hartnell questioned his original description of the attacker. I remember when I was first talked to, I mean, I had this guy being a walrus, you know. He had one of those Sears types of jackets. You know, those can be either lined or unlined, and if it's lined, a person could be thin. If it's unlined, the person would be heavy. I mean, he's not obese. Detective Robertson also recorded an extensive interview with Brian Hartnell, who was still sedated while he was recovering from surgery. Brian recounted the events leading up to the attack, and he later documented his memory of the conversation with the killer in a written transcript of the exchange. Brian's account began when the killer first emerged wearing the hooded costume and pointing a gun at the victims. What do you want? Now take it easy. All I want is your money. There's nothing to worry about. All I want is your money. Okay. Whatever you say. I want you to know that I will cooperate so you don't have to worry. Whatever you say we will do. Do you want us to come up with our hands up or down? Just don't make any fast moves. Come up slowly. But we don't have any money here. All I have is 75 cents. That doesn't matter. Every little bit helps. I'm on my way to Mexico. I escaped from Deer Lodge Prison in Montana. Deer Lodge, I need some money to get there. You're welcome to the money I have. But isn't there something else I can do for you? Give you a check or or get some more? No. I can give you my phone number and you can call me. No reply. I want to get in contact with you. I'm a sociology major, and maybe I can even offer you more help than you think you need. No. Well, is there any other thing you need? Yes. One more thing. I want your car keys. My car is hot. Reaching into pockets, then padding first front, then back pockets. I guess in all the excitement, I don't remember where I put them. Let's see, uh, are they in my shirt, uh, in the ignition, on the blanket... Say, would you answer a question for me? I've always wondered. On TV movies and in an article in the Reader's Digest, they say that thieves really keep their guns loaded. Is yours? Excited, slightly. Yes, it is. Then calm and matter-of-fact. I killed a couple of men before. What? I I didn't hear you. I killed a couple of guards getting out of prison. And I'm not afraid to kill again. Brian, do what he says. Now I want the girl to tie you up. Reaches for the rope that he pulls from back pocket. This is really strange. I wonder why someone hasn't thought of this before. I'll bet there's good money in it. No reply. What was the name of that prison? No reply. No, really, what did you say the name of it was? Uh, I'm just curious. Begrudgingly. Deer Lodge in Montana. There must have been some dialogue at this point, but I can't remember anything until we were both tied up. Now, I want you both to lay face down so I can tie up your feet. Come on. We could be out here for a long time and it could get cold at night. Come on. 
Get down. Listen, I didn't complain when you tied our hands, but this is ridiculous. I told you. We aren't going anywhere. Anyway, I don't think it's necessary. Or, oh, come on. We don't want to. Pointing gun directly at me, point blank range. I told you to get down. He ties me, then her. Your hands are shaking. Are you nervous? Yes, I guess so. <laughs> Laughed in a very relaxed manner. Well, I suppose that I'd be nervous too. Then, after we are tied and hogtied, now that everything is all said and done, could you show me that your gun is loaded? Or, and probably this, now that all is said and done, was that gun really loaded? Yes, it was. Or, sure, I'll show you. He then opened the cartridge, or whatever. That was the last thing I remember him saying. Signed, Brian Hartnell. Brian's account of the encounter with the Zodiac provided a chilling insight into the killer's mind and methods. The Zodiac came prepared with a gun, a knife, and pre-cut lengths of plastic clothesline he used to bind the victims. The hooded costume proved that the killer had spent considerable time and effort preparing to carry out his fantasy crime. According to Hartnell, the hood featured a large, white-crossed circle symbol over the chest, which appeared to have been meticulously constructed and sewn together. The Zodiac had used this symbol in his letters, and he apparently left this symbol on the door of Brian's car. Investigators questioned the validity of the killer's story about escaping from a prison and killing guards. Authorities at the prison in Deer Lodge, Montana, informed the Napa County Sheriff's Office that records showed no recent reports of escapes or incidents involving the death of a guard. The killer had worn a size 10.5 pair of boots. Detective John Robertson had conducted a fruitless effort to identify the brand and manufacturer. A probation officer named H.B. Schote later saw a photograph of the boot prints found at the scene of the attack. Schote thought he recognized the design of the boot print and contacted Basil Jones, a flight mechanic who worked at nearby Travis Air Force Base. A retired master sergeant in the U.S. Air Force, Jones was familiar with military footwear, and he believed that the boot print resembled the soles of a boot issued to Air Force personnel at the Lackland Air Force Base in Texas and other bases throughout the country. Designed primarily for use as wingwalker shoes, the boots were also available to civilian personnel employed at the bases. The flight mechanic provided a pair of boots for comparison. Narlo and Lonergan examined the soles of the boots alongside the plaster casts and photographs of the boot impressions taken at the crime scene, and they concluded that Jones had found an exact match. Narlo and Lonergan arrived at the base and were met by Bender, the chief of base security, and Lieutenant Colonel Laverick and Agent Don Santini from the Office of Special Investigation. The detectives learned that the boot in question was manufactured by the International Shoe Company in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and shipped to the Air Force Depot in Ogden, Utah, where they were then distributed to military installations only by written requisition order. The boots were sold on the bases in a sales store. The upper part of the boot was made by the Weinbrenner Shoe Company in Merrill, Wisconsin, while the soles were manufactured by Avon in Avon, Massachusetts. Over one million pairs had been produced to fulfill a government contract in 1966. Approximately 103,700 pairs had been sent to the Air Force Depot in Ogden in 1969. From August of 1968 through September of 1969, 100 pairs of size 10.5 boots were purchased and disposed of through sales. Agent Santini later reported that 500 to 1,000 pairs had been sold as surplus, in addition to the boots sold at sales stores at the military bases. 
Santini said that the base maintained records with the names of the individuals who had purchased the boots and promised to send a list to the sheriff's office. The many law enforcement agencies involved in the investigation required communication and cooperation. Concerned by the killer's growing territory, officials at the California State Department of Justice provided the local investigators with support and resources. A.L. Coffey, Chief of the Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation, CINI, assigned agents to assist, facilitate, and coordinate the investigation. Special Agent Mel Nikolai was selected to coordinate and oversee the investigation. On the morning of October 6th, Nikolai arrived at the Napa County Sheriff's Office to attend a meeting with Captain Donald Townsend. The men were joined by Supervising Special Agent Kenneth Horton, Supervising Photographer Bern Mensner, and latent fingerprint examiner Raymond Olson of the Department of Justice. Townsend briefed the others on the details of the case and discussed the evidence and the various suspects cleared by the investigation. Olson was asked to examine the palm print discovered at the Napa phone booth used by the killer, a palm print lifted from the door of Brian Hartnell's car, and the latent fingerprints located on the Zodiac letters. Vern Mensner then photographed the evidence for the Department of Justice files. The department also assigned handwriting expert Sherwood Morrill to examine the writings attributed to the killer. Head of the department's question documents section, Morrill would be forever linked to the case. Throughout his career, Morrill was involved in many high-profile cases, and some of his conclusions were called controversial. Morrill's work in the case of Angela Davis, a member of the Symbionese Liberation Army, or SLA, drew criticisms from other experts. Serious and sometimes stubborn, Sherwood Morrill was confident in his findings. Morrill claimed that handwriting is as distinctive as fingerprints. The expert examined the letters sent by the killer and determined that one individual was responsible for all of the writings. Morrill also studied the message left on Brian Hartnell's car, and he concluded that the handwriting belonged to the same person who had authored the letters. Morrill stated that the Zodiac's printing was distinctive, and he believed that the killer was intelligent, but may have deliberately misspelled some words in an attempt to disguise that intelligence. Morrill was firm in his opinion that the killer had not altered his printing, and was using his own natural style of writing when creating the Zodiac letters. If the Zodiac wrote the message on Brian Hartnell's car, the writing established a definitive link between the Berryessa killer and the Zodiac letters. On October 9th, representatives of the Solano County Sheriff's Office, the California Highway Patrol, the Napa County Sheriff's Office, and the Department of Justice gathered at the Vallejo Police Department to compare notes and coordinate their efforts. The report of the meeting stated that all investigators were made aware of the evidence that existed. As more and more law enforcement agencies were drawn into the hunt for the Zodiac, cooperation was essential. Later, some individuals would claim that jurisdictional jealousies, egos, and ambitions had somehow hindered the investigation and prevented the flow of information. Special Agent Mel Nikolai attended many meetings and worked with the many investigators assigned to the notorious case. Nikolai refuted claims that a lack of cooperation and communication had somehow interfered with the investigation when he said, quote, that's just a bunch of bullshit, and added, we all work together. The notion that the law enforcement agencies involved in the Zodiac investigation did not cooperate was just one of many persistent myths about the case. Park Ranger William White made several statements which caused confusion in the following years. According to White, Brian Hartnell told him that the killer claimed he had escaped from a prison in Colorado and not from Montana as Hartnell told investigators. 
Ken Narlow recalled the confusion caused by the conflicting accounts. Uh, information through two different sources. When the park ranger up in Lake Berryessa talked to the kids while they were waiting for the ambulance, either Art Nell or Cecilia Shepard made the comment that he was from Colorado. And uh, when my detective interviewed Art Nell next day after he was brought into the Queen of the Valley Hospital, Hartnell said that he was from a, a place in Montana, mm. and it was uh, two words. Fern lock or feathers yeah. or something? He was going around the, the bush, you know, with all these two-word uh, names of towns up there. And, of course, my detective, in his efforts to help him, <laughs> suggested he might be from Deer uh, Lodge. Uh, and he said, yeah, yeah, that's that, you're live. Well, you know, we don't know if it's a power suggestion or or what. Mm -hmm. So you have to take it for what it's worth. He's trying to do a good job, and uh, he may have put words in his mouth that didn't meant to be there, you know? Yeah, well, I was curious because I've been reading the reports, and the only reference to Colorado is that one little paragraph about William White's statement. That's right. So anyway, uh, we don't know uh, what the credibility is on that or not. Generally, the first impression is always the best, but we're already getting it third hand. And they told us originally from Colorado, you know, when somebody in my office and said Montana the next day, we would have tried to clarify. Were you aware of the discrepancy right away, or was that yeah. something that... Yeah, we were. My, the detective that talked to them wasn't. But we were aware, say, within a day or two, and we were aware officer Barry Esser wrote his little synopsis. It wasn't really an interview, it was just idle talk, you know, while yeah. waiting for the ambulance. He wasn't a deputy sheriff or anything, he was a park ranger at the time. How did you feel about that? I mean, did you try to investigate both angles? Or? Well, we, we kind of put more credence naturally in the Montana angle because that's what Hartnell told my detective directly, was from Montana. But that's why we uh, we concentrated our efforts on all escapees uh, in, in the Montana area. We didn't come up with one, but he was clear. Uh, there was one. There was one, and he didn't set the description. Investigators were forced to check on escapees from prisons in both states. In the summer of 1968, two convicts escaped from Deer Lodge Prison in Montana. Raymond Lee Wilson and David Finch headed north to Ohio where they found a couple camping near Bonner's Ferry. Threatened with a knife, the terrified campers gave their car keys and a 22 caliber pistol to the convicts. Finch and Wilson bound and gagged the victims and then fled in the stolen car belonging to the couple. Some details of this crime, the prison escape, the knife, and more, were similar to the story told by the Zodiac at Lake Berryessa. A story about the incident had appeared in an issue of the military newspaper Stars and Stripes on July 24, 1968. Narlow also knew that the story of a prison break and the killing of guards may simply have been a lie designed to convince the victims that the suspect had nothing to lose and was willing to kill if they resisted. Narlo expressed his doubts about the attacker's tale. Escapee, you know, we kind of figure, well, maybe he is an escapee. But then you ask yourself, why the mask? If a guy is an escapee and he's going to end up killing the victims anyway, why, why a mask at all? Are you going to kill somebody? What, you know, what do you care if they, they see your face or not? Ranger William White also told detectives and a TV news reporter that the attacker had announced his intention to stab the victims, and that Brian had even asked to be stabbed first because he did not want to see Cecilia killed. And the guy told him to take the money. He said, I don't want it. He says, all, I'm gonna do, all I want to do is kill you people. I have to kill you. The boy asked him, said, you really mean that? And he said, yes, I mean it. He says, um, well, he said, if you're going to said, kill me first because I can't stand to see the girl be stabbed. He said, well, I'll do that. So he started stabbing the kid in the back. According to Brian's account, the victims had no warning whatsoever. White's version of the attacker's words and actions would be repeated for decades. 
Most people could not imagine any circumstance in which they would willingly ask to be stabbed, and even Ken Narlo found the account difficult to believe. I thought that was kind of odd, too. He's being very cavalier about it, or, or maybe he was trying to save uh, Cecilia. Because I can't stand pain, I can't stand to see her stabbed or something like that, so the Zodiac supposedly stabbed him, and we thought, what did you hunt? Being awful stupid or awful brave, I don't know what you did. The only thing is that Hartnell was probably in a state of shock when he was up there talking to Park Ranger White. But did you have much confidence in his memory of what happened with the suspect? Yeah. Brian Hartnell adamantly denied that he had asked to be stabbed first, and he refuted White's account when I interviewed him almost 20 years ago. The first inkling I had was when I was on my stomach, and he just kind of paused, and he put away his gun. And I think I turned my head down, and the next thing I knew is, I just remember, frankly, I think, being stabbed. I don't even remember if I saw an arm in motion, perhaps, but I mean, it wasn't like all of a sudden he pulls it out and leers and I'm going, oh God, don't, you know, it's none of that. I mean, there was no time for any thought, reflection, sniveling, or otherwise. In an effort to provide a possible explanation for the statements attributed to him by William White, Hartnell speculated that the ranger may simply have been mistaken. You know, if those words passed my lips, it had to be as a muse. If a person were to be attributed those words, it would be in a context as probably it's a good thing he stabbed me first because I would not have wanted to watch it happen. So in a sense, I suppose I could muse, well, gee, I'm glad he stabbed me first because I'm a chicken. I sure wouldn't want to watch that happen. Another persistent myth claimed that Cecilia Shepard had been stabbed more than 20 times and that the killer had carved a crossed circle symbol, the sign of the Zodiac, into her flesh. This falsehood first appeared in an article written by San Francisco Chronicle reporter Paul Avery, who wrote, The girl died of more than 20 wounds inflicted. The knife fell again and again and formed the mysterious symbol like the crosshairs of a gun sight that has come to be the Zodiac's hallmark. This inaccurate account was later repeated in the best-selling book Zodiac, written by Chronicle cartoonist Robert Graysmith. Ken Narlo debunked this myth. Then there was some story going around that some satanical group might be involved because the first stab won't work in the shape and form or something. That, that, that's called wash. Yeah. Stabbed five times front and back, and to the best of my recollection, yeah, that, I think that's. That's on the autopsy report. Brian Hartnell also dismissed this story. He's not sitting there doing a ritualistic marking. He's just trying to kill her. Many people involved in the Zodiac case often noted that Robert Graysmith's book was not a reliable source for information. The factual errors in the book Zodiac created confusion for those who wanted to learn more about the crimes. I assume you read Robert Graysmith's book. Yeah. How did you feel about the way that book handled the case? Oh, well, there's some inaccuracies in there, but I think I gave it about a seven as far as accuracy is concerned. Uh, I know he had the wrong crime scene for various Narlo was correct. In his book, Robert Graysmith inaccurately identified the Barry as a crime scene, as Zodiac researcher Ed Neal explained in this clip from an interview in 2007. Now, if we have a look on plate 9 in the first photo section between pages 108 and 109, there's a map that Robert Graysmith has provided us to find the location where the actual attack took place. So he shows, you know, where Hartnell collapsed, path of the killer, Hartnell and Shepard attacked. Now, this does generally fit the description of Zodiac Island. However, the place that he indicates on the map is not Zodiac Island nor does it match up with his written description in the text. Around page 65 in Zodiac. Does Graysmith's description of this crime scene match the actual location? Well, the general description, yes it does. Now where is the correct location? 
It is called Twin Oak Ridge. This is located at the Oak Shores Recreation Area at Lake Berryessa. And in the book, Graysmith describes two large oak trees on the island. Yes, he does. Where is the scene on Graysmith's map? place that's depicted here in Plate 9 appears to be what is called Shale Point, also in the same area, Oak Shores Recreation Area. However, it is perhaps half a mile south of Zodiac Island. But the map that he has drawn is of Shale Point. Which does not match that description. No. The first time I attempted to locate the scene of the stabbing at Lake Berryessa, I used Robert Graysmith's book and I ended up in the wrong spot. Which is exactly what I did and everybody else. And that was until 1999 when Ken Narlow took myself and Mike Rodelli out to the exact site. Once we were there and then later compared it to the pictures, it's like, oh wow, this is the right place. We knew then, absolutely, that the map provided in Zodiac is incorrect. For those keeping score, his map is incorrect. Right. His description, correct or incorrect? Well, it appears to be correct, near as I can tell. And his directions? <laughs> well, the directions are way off. You'll end up in Shale Point. You won't end up anywhere near Twin Oak Ridge and Zodiac Island. The attack at the lake remains one of the most terrifying crimes in history and a frightening look into the mind of the Zodiac. Police reports, interviews, and news accounts can only provide a glimpse of what really happened that day at Lake Berryessa. After narrowly escaping death, Brian Hartnell was released from the hospital and returned to Angwin, where the familiar surroundings of Pacific Union College helped him resume some sense of normalcy. On the afternoon of October 10th, Napa County Sheriff's Detective Ken Narlow and Department of Justice Special Agent Mel Nikolai met with Brian at the PUC campus. The men confirmed Brian's account of the crime, but he was unable to offer any additional details about the conversation or the attacker. Narlo and Nikolai promised to do all they could to find the man who killed Cecilia Shepard. Despite the massive display of law enforcement resources, the killer remained at large and strangely silent. The attack at Lake Berryessa was not followed by another letter from the Zodiac and the silence was puzzling. Two weeks after the brutal stabbing, investigators worried that another attack was imminent. In his next letter, the killer proved that he had changed his method of collecting slaves, and his new threats would forever haunt the citizens of the Bay Area. A to Z. Written and produced by Michael Butterfield. Zodiac Voice by John Knight. Zodiac A to Z. Produced for ZodiacKillerFacts.com.